Tonight's talk is about comparing. I grew up quite close to where the Boston Marathon starts. The Boston Marathon is a 26-mile marathon that's been happening for many years. Toward the end of that marathon, um, at the beginning and middle, most of it is flat. And then at the end, there's a hill, the only hill in the race called Heartbreak Hill. The retreat that we're doing, the three-month retreat, is like a marathon. And when we get to this point, I call it Heartbreak Hill. So far, it's been flat. (laughs) And what I notice about um, Heartbreak Hill, the reason I call it that, is that there tends to be a point where people start comparing their practice, comparing it from the beginning of the retreat, comparing it with other retreats, really assessing what's happened, seeing if we've gotten anything out of it. A lot of people are saying that they feel like they were at the beginning of the retreat. And I find that so interesting because, you know, at this point, no one has the slightest perspective. And it's like being, it's like being 20,000 leagues under the sea without a rope to fathom you know, any kind of perspective at all. Um, so be careful of the comparing, especially comparing to the beginning, because I don't think you could possibly remember at this point. You know, it's, it's just too far away. So the beginning of the retreat is unfathomable, really. And the end of the retreat is pretty far away. You know, there's still two weeks left of full practice. And that's so rare in this world. It's so rare to have an hour, never mind. Most people find it hard to get a weekend and then to have so much momentum behind us now. It's like so rare in this world to have this kind of momentum. I love this time of the retreat because everybody's really cooking. You know, the fire is at its most intense. So try to remember to keep the practice simple, that what we're trying to do is develop understanding from paying attention to our moment-to-moment experience. That's all we're doing. That's, that's, what, that's what will be happening when the retreat ends. You know, it's, it's just this commitment to learning wisdom from our own experience. And this takes patience. There's a poem by Basho that I like a lot. He says, journeying through the world, to and fro, to and fro, cultivating a small field. The practice, we're cultivating a small field in our hearts. I like to come here to IMS because of the Carter Stevens farm, um, because all of the big fields or small fields around us uh, are corn fields that they eventually feed the cows. 
If you happen to be outside at all during the three-month retreat, one will notice that there's a lot of manure being brought over and over again to these fields in the fall um, because putting the manure on the fields helps nourish the soil. It helps really strengthen the soil. The times in our practice where it can seem like nothing's happening or when a deeper layer is emerging in the practice or even difficult times are like compost or manure. Um, These times can smell (laughs) and can be difficult and we might seem like they shouldn't be part of our practice, but it's actually the nourishment and the strength for the practice. Comparing our practice or judging our practice reminds me of bike riding. When we're riding downhill, which I really like riding downhill a lot, there's a feeling of effortlessness and it's breezy and it's fun. Riding uphill or climbing uphill, especially if we're comparing it to going downhill, is not nearly as pleasant. It's not nearly as fun. Uh, But you know that to be able to go downhill for these effortless times in practice, one has to climb uphill. It's inevitable. You know, what goes up must come down. What goes down must come up. It's just how the practice is. We, we really climb and climb and climb and climb to these effortless places or, or peak experiences, and then we fall, and then we climb and we fall. That's what it's all about. The climbing is strengthening. It's like the manure being put on the fields. Be careful of getting attached to the times where we're going downhill, to the effortless times. The uphill is essential for ripening understanding. Whatever you've opened to or or are opening to on the retreat, or whatever you've come to understand or are understanding, give it time. Let it cook. Let it ripen. That's what a long retreat is all about, is this very invisible ripening of wherever we are in the practice. We have two whole weeks for this cooking or ripening to still occur. It's a long time. There's no rush. So let the momentum that you have that's going in the practice, let it carry you through this time. It's a wonderful time in the retreat. I love it. Since I've experienced so many people talking about comparing, I wanted um, to talk about comparing and how it relates to conceit and mudita, or empathetic joy. One of the One of the things that become clear when we're doing the practice is to see how deeply our self-esteem occurs when we measure our worth in relationship to what's happening in the practice. 
So say we have good concentration, there might be a thought that appears, oh, I'm doing good. And if we believe that thought, if we identify with it, we'll feel worthwhile. What if the mindfulness falls apart and the thought happens, oh, I'm doing terrible. If we believe that thought, if we identify with it, we'll feel worthless. Any kind of self-referencing, as you remember in terms of conceit, um, is a source of suffering for us. If there's mindfulness present when these thoughts appear in the mind, we don't get caught in comparing, and the thoughts will be fine, they're okay, they're just thoughts. Remembering that comparing thoughts will happen. And as the retreat moves into this time in the retreat, there will be comparing thoughts. You don't have to fight with them or struggle with them, you just have to see them clearly. When can see this, I think, the most easily in relationship to hearing. So say you're sitting here and it's quiet and you notice you're aware of hearing and you notice a thought, oh, that's a car. You know, you'll be with the bare attention of just the vibration of hearing the car without any thought. It's just vibration. And then at some point, a thought will happen, oh, that's a car. You, the practice isn't trying to stop that happening. We're not trying to stop that thought from happening. We're trying to just let that whole process of noticing that bare attention of hearing happen, and then to let the thought come and go without getting caught in it, without believing it and getting lost in that, and, and not going back to the bare attention of the vibration of hearing. So we can't stop content from happening. That's not what we're trying to do. We're not trying to stop any story from happening. We're trying to see, thinking clearly, that it's just a process that comes and goes, that we don't have to identify with. Wanting to know what things are is a source of security for us that movement from bare attention of hearing to the thought, oh, that's a car, I know what that is. You know, that's when we're very young, that's how we form a sense of safety and security in this world. Oh, that's a bell, oh, that's a light. It really helps us feel like there are boundaries and form in this world of formlessness. It's an important uh, developmental stage for us. But as we get older, the conceptual world can become a prison for us. And we can get so locked into one way of perceiving reality that we miss this incredible, mysterious, indescribable show of what's really happening besides this conceptual world. So the idea of the practice is that through the mindfulness, through this non-judgmental attention, we can drop into a deeper and deeper uh, layer of reality, of truth, 
which is non-conceptual. But that doesn't mean that the conceptual world of thinking doesn't happen. It means that those thoughts will happen, they keep happening, but we get less and less caught in them. We see them more and more clearly, and we see them as part, part of the practice. Conceptual thought is part of the practice. All we have to do is step back and let them flow by, not try to get rid of them or to stop them. So with comparing thoughts, say we have the thought, I haven't gotten a thing out of this three-month retreat, Um, or, you know, I'm back at the beginning, or whatever. Those thoughts will happen. We don't have to get rid of them as much as just be careful, beware. You know, they lead to a lot of suffering. See if you can just see them as thoughts. Otherwise, one gets really lost lost in this feeling really worthy or worthwhile and then feeling worthless as we go up and down and up and down. Seeing thinking as a process is just something that happens. Um, When we see clearly, it brings a deeper kind of happiness or security because we don't have to get rid of thinking and that creates less and less struggle or conflict in the mind or the heart. If we happen to be going along in the practice and we do identify with a thought that brings about unworthiness, say we think I'm doing no good or I'm failing at this or whatever, we still can bring a non-identification in it, meaning that it's just the experience of unworthiness. It's just like a cloud that passes through the sky and goes. It's very important to distinguish between um, the experience of unworthiness and making an interpretation that I'm an unworthy person in relationship to anything difficult or like an interpretation that we're doing no good. There's a real difference between the experience of worthlessness, which is just worthlessness, and making an assumption of solidifying that into I'm unworthy and just the opposite when we're doing well. And we make this interpretation that it's great, uh, and we feel like I'm, I'm special or I'm really um, worthy. Again, we can still have that experience of feeling worthy, letting that come and go, and not making that movement or solidifying into I am worthy, I'm a worthy person. This is a great place to uh, learn about um, worthiness, uh, unworthiness at this part of the retreat because the comparing thoughts will start to flow in. What I've noticed in my life is that the more the experience of unworthiness happens and if I'm identifying with it, the harder it is for me to feel mudita or sympathetic joy. 
mudita is the experience of being able to appreciate any kind of joy or happiness that another or oneself is experiencing. And when we feel like we're no good or that um, we're unworthy, then it's really hard to appreciate any kind of joy or happiness in oneself, in the past or in the present. And it's really hard to experience it for others. One of the things you can try doing in the next weeks is when, when we do make an interpretation that things are going well, um, say there's a feeling that the mindfulness is happening, see if you can experience mudita for yourself. See if you can, pra- you know, just bring in a bit of uh, appreciating the happiness in your life, feeling that joy for yourself to genuinely appreciate that part of the practice. And then if things are going downhill, (laughs) I mean uphill meaning that we're climbing uh, and it's not so easy, see if you can experience compassion for yourself, to care about the difficulty or the struggle rather than to judge it. What I notice is that when we feel like um, things aren't going well, there's a tendency to be cruel to ourselves, to belittle ourselves, or to judge ourselves, or to abandon ourselves, because we believe any of these comparing thoughts when it's not so easy. Any of these ways of relating to ourselves with cruelty is the opposite of compassion. There's a way in which relating to the effortless times with mudita and relating to the climbing times with compassion, it's a way of um, balancing this identification with worthwhileness and unworthiness. It's the antidote for the comparing. As you probably remember, the opposite of mudita is envy. Instead of genuinely appreciating somebody or somebody's happiness or joy in their life, we experience this jealousy or envy. Uh, And there's a lot of suffering in that experience. I think when we tend to be feeling like things aren't going well, we can tend to look at someone else in the meditation hall or walking around, and even though we don't know what's going on in their practice, we can make a whole story around how they're doing so well. You know, they're probably close to third stage of enlightenment, and, you know, here we are wallowing in, you know, just some basic major envy. They could be having the worst time in the world, we don't know, but we create this really painful distance and separation between me, who's not doing well, and them that are doing so well. I did a retreat years ago um, after this person I was involved with, we had broken up and he had gotten involved with somebody else uh, right away, it seemed to me. And um, he and her 
were sitting way in front of me in this retreat. Uh, and I was sitting in the back watching them. <laughs> and it was such an interesting situation because I kept identifying with the jealousy. This incredible jealousy was coming up. And I, I didn't want to have anything to do with it. And I kept pushing it away and pushing it away. And I kept feeling like, if I experience this jealousy, it means I'm a jealous person. It means I'm no good. And it was an incredibly difficult retreat. But it actually taught me so much about what's underneath the jealousy. I think that, you know, it's like in this culture especially, there's this vision of the jealous queen who has lightning coming out of her fingernails and she's very like a controlling witch. Um, and I kept thinking that that's what that meant. Uh, but if I allowed myself to go into it, I felt this just core of feeling like I was no good. You know, instead of it seeming like this really powerful, controlling experience, it was actually this feeling of utter powerlessness and defeat. Um, when I saw that, I started being able to let the experience of jealousy kind of happen. I'd dip my toes in it, feel it a little bit, move away from it, you know, take a little more of a chunk next time, take a little more of a chunk next time. And eventually I could let that experience come and go. Oh, jealousy, my good friend. You know, it's not a problem when we don't identify with it. It's like a cloud, again, storm cloud. <laughs> Major storm cloud. <laughs> Hurricane. You know, it can be really painful and dark, but it's just jealousy. It's just a word, it's just a concept. For what? What's the experience? And then what I found to my utter surprise was that the more I could let the jealousy come and go, the more I was experiencing my worthwhileness. It was like that whole, my whole life of keeping that experience at, at bay also kept the experience of worthiness at bay. When we're going along in the retreat and we have that experience of comparing, of envy, or of worth, worthlessness, see if you can let them come and go. We don't have to control them. We don't have to be afraid of those experiences, just to see them clearly. There's a little saying that I like a lot if I'm feeling really bad. Watermelons, even they can manage themselves. <laughs> watermelons. Just think of watermelons managing themselves. If they can do it, <laughs> we can do it.
there's another <clears throat> level of comparing that we've talked about, um, but I wanted to kind of go into it on a deeper level, which is around conceit, which the Buddha gave um, three armies of Mara to. Mara, um, the translation for that is often the killer of life or the killer of existence. The eighth, ninth, and tenth army, meaning that this is a pretty strong uh, force in the world of suffering that we need to come to terms with. Um, the eighth uh, aspect of conceit is the feeling of worthlessness, putting oneself down. The ninth is being motivated for gain or reverence or fame. The last, uh, self-importance or putting others down. In the practice of Vipassana, what one starts to see is that the truth is deeper than this polarity of feeling uh, better than or worse than or equal to. All of this conceit is based on a sense of being a separate I. So it's based on the belief that uh, the body is mine, or thoughts are mine, or emotions are mine, or feelings are mine. And that's all an illusion. That's why the Buddha said to think of conceit or comparing as madness. There's, there's a great song by Bob Dylan. The whole song is about, he calls it the disease of conceit. And he says, nothing about conceit that's sweet, the disease of conceit. There's a whole lot of hearts breaking tonight from the disease of conceit comes right out of nowhere when you're down for the count. From the outside world, the pressure will mount, turns you into a piece of meat, the disease of conceit. If you've got delusions of grandeur and an eagle eye, give you the idea that you're too good to die, and they'll bury you from your head to your feet from the disease of conceit. It's a killer. It's a killer of life. It creates this enormous sense of separation between ourselves and the rest of the world. The army of Mara, uh, the ninth, which is the being motivated for desire, gain, uh, for, for gain, reverence, and fame. Basically, that's all about intention or motivation. And in relationship to the practice, uh, a lot of this suffering around comparing happens around um, what are we motivated for in our practice. So often, the motivation will come out of the fear of failure or the desire for approval. And whether we're sitting or walking, it can be interesting to watch one's relationship to who we are, or before or after interviews. 
you know, anywhere where one will see this thoughts churning up around, I'm doing better, I'm doing great, I'm special, I'm failing, oh, that's terrible. You know, there's so many judgments uh, in so many ways. Uh, And it's important to know that our motivation is mixed. You'd be fooling yourself to think that motivation is always so deep and pure. If you've survived in our culture so far, uh, it would be hard not to have any kind of competition going on, at least with yourself, never mind with others. It's a culture steeped in outer approval and competition. Most of us never learned that we could be motivated by our own interest, <clears throat> our love of learning from our deep delight in the truth. If we want to get in touch with our intention, it's important to be able to be honest about the many kinds of att- intentions, the skillful, the not so skillful, and then to see if you can come from the deepest place. It's okay to have mixed intentions. Usually they're there. It's being able to let those thoughts be there and then choose the deepest motivation. We can learn to practice because seeing the truth is important to us. We know we'll make mistakes. We know we have to take risks. This is a quotation from Kim Stafford. I took my little girl to the circus once at the Coliseum on a hot afternoon. By the fountain outside before the show, she ripped off her shoes and socks to wade, working her way along the square, tiled edge just at the rim of the deep. Dad, she called. I'm going all the way around. Water scattered up. Several mothers turned to me. I could see the question in their faces and in hers. Would I let her go? I nodded. I knew she would fall in. (laughs) Sound familiar? She started around, walking the edge with her hands thrust out for balance, creeping along the first side, and wobbling, turning at the corner. Halfway along the second side, water sprayed across her path. Path. She will make it across there, I thought, across the tough place. Then she will fall. Her steps slowed. It was hard to see her footing in the spray. I watched her through the gauze of water. Then beyond the spray, where her footing was better, she turned to look at me and she fell. (laughs) She smiled over her shoulder and fell. With a splash, she went down into the pool, not a swimmer, but a mother near her grabbed her and hoisted her out, and she came padding to me across the hot pavement. Her dress left a trail of wet, her hair streamed down, and her face was bright. She stood stubby tall before me, When I was falling, Dad, I heard my little voice, but it didn't say, 
be afraid. It said, have fun falling. (laughs) Her eyebrows went up and her mouth clamped into a line of conviction. When I live my life now, when I write, when I enter a hard time in an uncertain way, I want my little voice saying, have fun falling. Have fun tumbling into the changes that rain and root and every pair of wings has to carry out. A secret the wind and lightning and sorrow and love keep making plain. By falling you find the bottom and without that, no joy. In this culture of competition, it's so hard to have that attitude that it's okay to fall. You know, it's okay to make mistakes. In fact, it's part of the practice to hit bottom many, many times. It's okay. So we can learn to be motivated from a deep place in the practice, holding all the other intentions, you know, all the ways in which we are motivated um, through striving, through fear, from that deeper place of motivation. We can be motivated um, from just that pure exploration that leads to joy, if our hearts are pure all things in our world are pure. Being motivated in the practice to get something or to get rid of something backfires every time. I think that if you taste equanimity, that sweetness of equanimity that Stephen was talking about last night, you'll see that that works. You know, we feel contentment there. It's like a valley, a deep valley of contentment, equanimity. And any time where we're motivated by wanting or motivated by not wanting, one can see the suffering in that. It's very painful in and of itself. But we don't have to get rid of anything. That's not freedom. And we don't have to get anything. That's not freedom. All we have to do is purify our relationship to what's happening. And that happens over and over and over and over. We're not changing life in any way. We're just trying to see it clearly. Over time, the whole world opens up and that we're just learning to see more and more of what can happen in our human life clearly. We learn not to identify with what's happening. Pain, pleasure, joy, sorrow, rain, sun. You know, it's opening to the whole show. Learning to work with the whole show rather than having to get rid of knee pain, rather than having to get rid of desire. But just to see it clearly, not to get caught. When we do get in touch with a deep place of motivation for our practice, 
we usually understand that to end suffering, we have to find our way home. And that the practice isn't about outer achievement or approval, but it's all about internal victories that are pretty invisible to anyone but ourselves. Exploring the truth doesn't have to do with performing or pleasing others or comparing oneself to others. It's just any time where you see clearly. And that happens a lot in the practice. You might not like what you're seeing clearly, (laughs) Um, but that doesn't matter. That's not the point. There's a great poem by an old Chinese poet named, I don't know how to say his name, something like Shi Tei. <laughs> Sound familiar? Shi <laughs> Tei. <laughs> not going, not coming. Not going, not coming, rooted deep and still, not reaching out, not reaching in, just resting at the center, a single jewel, the flawless crystal drop, in the blaze of its brilliance, the way beyond, not reaching out, not reaching in, trusting our own rhythm in the practice, means that we develop responsibility for our own mind, our own birth, our own life, our own death. We can take responsibility for ourselves fully when we don't reach out, when we don't reach in. And then the practice will start to unfold from this inner center. And that the not reaching out, not reaching in, develops a place of inner security that's beyond this polarity of worth, wildness, and worthlessness. If one's practice doesn't unfold from this inner center, it's a very insecure world because we are still dependent on outer approval or fear of failure. Not reaching out, not reaching in. That's what the mindfulness is all about. I've described ways of working with comparing, learning not to identify with the comparing thoughts, having mudita, or compassion for the ups and downs of the practice, finding this deep place of motivation, you know, an inner, an inner center where there is no reaching out, no reaching in, um, where we can be motivated from. Finding the deepest motivation in our practice is important, um, but I think it's also to balance that with not taking ourselves too seriously. You know, the humor is 
a very important part of our path of awakening. There's a tribe, a Nootka tribe in the Northwest. Um, In that tribe, um, there are sacred clowns. And there's a book called The Daughters of Copper Woman, where the writer Anne Cameron describes her grandmother um, talking about what clowning is in their culture. The clown in their culture is a very sacred person who, because their motivation was very pure, they were allowed to make fun of others who were taking themselves too seriously. who were having any self-referencing going on, whether it was feeling worth, you know, feeling no good or feeling too good. So the clown couldn't be motivated by meanness or righteousness uh, or belittling or harming. The clown had to be motivated by uh, a deep seeing clearly and not to do anything but to try to teach the person. So this is a quotation from Granny about clowns. If you thought every word you spoke was gospel, the clown would just stroll along behind you, babbling away like a simple mind or a baby. (laughs) Every up and down of your voice, the clown's voice would go up and down until you finally heard what an ass you were being. Or maybe you had a bad temper and yelled a lot when you got mad or hadn't learned any self-control or something like that. Well, the clown would just have fits. Every time you turned around, there'd be the clown bashing away with a stick on the sand or kicking like a fool at a big rock or yelling insults back at the seagulls and just generally looking really stupid. We needed our clowns, and we used them to help us all learn the best ways to get along with each other. Being an individual is really good, but sometimes we're we're so busy being individuals, we forget we have to live with a lot of other people who all have the right to be individuals too. And the clowns could show us if we were getting a bit pushy or starting to take ourselves too serious. Humor, when it's done with this pure motivation, allows our hearts to open so that we can receive the teaching, especially when life is difficult. Life isn't so easy. If we're comparing outwardly with the other people here or inwardly with ourselves, our former practice, it's important to remember that everybody here is exactly where they need to be, doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing, learning what we're supposed to be learning. After um, college, I think I've spoken before about how I moved up to way out in the woods in northern Maine with some friends and my, some of my family. 
And the first years there, we all lived in one house, about 13 of us, with, with no walls uh, between rooms. There was just two rooms, an upstairs and a downstairs. Uh, and none of us really knew how to get along with each other at all. And when winter set in, like around now, <laughs> you can imagine all of us cooped up inside with each other day after day after day after day. Uh, it was very tense at times. And I have a friend that lived there who was this kind of clown. He was very good at being able to make fun of other people uh, from a deeper place. So especially helpful in the long winters, someone would always be acting like they were doing all the work in the community. And then they'd be, I think, you know, really righteous. And so my friend would start following this person around and just sighing. <sighs> <laughs> and then he'd start banging pots and pans. And then he'd just, at, at this the right moment, he'd say, I do all the work around here. <laughs> and you could just feel this tension build, like it was just like this tension would build after he'd say it. But everybody knew it was true. And then eventually, you know, it was so painful, and then it was so painful, and then everyone would burst out laughing. And it was okay. Um, it was never fun if you were the one he was doing. <laughs> But he had an ability to just catch it. You know, the other side of that is that, say, you know, you had a low self-image and you were feeling like nothing you did was working out. Just as you were working at something and just so frustrated, and everybody, of course, was frustrated too, picking up that low self-esteem. <laughs> and just at the right moment, he'd just yell at the top of his lungs, You stupid! jerk. <laughs> and it, again, it would just, that tension, it, it would just be, people would just be, ugh, it would be like somebody put their fingernails down a blackboard. But then again, it would be so true. It would be so funny. And it would break it again. Uh, this, is, this is important. You know, you know how, remember I said that that monk in the Benedictine Abbey, when he was asked what was his biggest obstacle to God. And he said, the other monks. You know, you know how hard it is for us to live in a community and how much judging and comparing really happens. And it's not to try to stop it, it's how do we deal with it. And one way is humor. It's, it's great. The motivation has to be pure. That's when it's really funny and helpful. The tenth army of Mara is considered by the Buddha to be the most lethal self-importance. Why? Especially when it comes to practice, if we feel like we're finished, you know, if we feel like we know everything or know a lot, we'll become complacent. And that complacency is the most dangerous for us because we'll 
feel like we don't need to do anything, we'll stop. What I've noticed in a lot of the teachers I had, what struck me the most about them was their commitment to keep going in the practice, to not feel finished, ever. The person who inspired me the most in this aspect of conceit was a teacher from Calcutta named Deepama. She died several years ago. Um, And in terms of the commitment to keep going that we all need to find within ourselves, that to balance the commitment with our own rhythm, with our own pace, makes that commitment possible however it's happening for us to find our own rhythm within it, that's how we find that commitment without uh, resorting to striving and comparing with others. There was a year where Deepama came here to teach, uh, and I was paired up with her with students, and she was staying at the house across the street for three months. So I would do interviews all morning, and she would do interviews all morning. And then after lunch, I was living in the building upstairs here, and I would look out the window before my nap. Uh, And I would watch Deepama walk out of the front door and do walking meditation just as I was going to my nap. (laughs) Rain or shine, snow or sleep, Deepama would be out there with her little white cotton cloth doing walking meditation. And she was quite old and sickly at that point. And her mind wasn't exactly, you know, full of muck. You know, she wasn't exactly looking like she was suffering a lot. And it was quite interesting for me to watch the reaction in my mind. You know, at first I'd be looking out the window and I'd think, I should do that. I'm no good, I should do that. And I would be really tired. And then i think, okay, I'm where I am. <laughs> She's where she is. And I'd lay down and I'd take a nap. <laughs> um, but um, what I found interesting about Deepama was that there was actually no show, no pretense, nothing special. She was just totally simple. She'd be over there, and her daughter would be cooking and watching TV, and her grandson would be running around. And she'd do her practice right there in the midst of everything. Uh, And she would be doing walking meditation outside. She'd come in and sit right there in front of the TV. And she'd just sit a few minutes, and she'd go into the deepest places of metta and peace. Uh, And when she would open her eyes, I would just see what that commitment was doing. You know, she was so happy and so peaceful, and she could just share that with everyone. There was a group with her. She used to do some group interviews, and somebody asked her what was her mind like, what was in her consciousness. And she answered, in my mind, there are three things. She said, there are There is concentration, loving-kindness, and peace. And the person said, is that all? And she said, yes. 
That's all. That's very inspiring. Just three things. (laughs) Concentration, metta, peace. What struck me was that she didn't feel finished in that. You know, it was like there was such a motivation for her to end all suffering, even if there was just some left, a little bit. You know, so I think we need to be quite humble about our journey. You know, it's, it's a rich, um, rich practice. And what seems to happen to me when I watch ourselves is that what happens is just this motivation to be mindful keeps strengthening, it keeps deepening. That's all you need to know about your practice. You don't need to buy into any of the comparing. Just just look at your motivation and look at it over time. Take five-year chunks, 10-year chunks, 15-year chunks, it's if you take a, a small view, you get too caught in the ups and downs, and that's not what it's about. It's about this deep commitment to be free. So in this time of heartbreak hill, beware of comparing. Beware of getting caught in the comparing. Remember, you can bring the mindfulness with the thinking. They're just thoughts. You can bring the appreciation or the mudita for the feeling of effortless times, really genuinely appreciating when it's going well for you, and then bringing compassion to the difficult times bringing care to the lows. And then looking at your intention, this deep motivation of why you're doing the practice from this inner crystal center, this deep inner security. And then just looking at your commitment to keep going at your own pace. It takes some patience with ourselves. I'd like to end with a quotation from Beginner's Mind, Suzuki Roshi. I wanted to read it because there's such nice mist and rain today, and it's a nice metaphor for patience. After you have practiced for a while, you will realize that it is not possible to make rapid, extraordinary progress. (laughs) I'm going to repeat that. (laughs) This is a sign of maturity in the practice. After you have practiced for a while, you will realize that it is not possible to make rapid, extraordinary progress. Even though you try very hard, the progress you make is always little by little. 
It is like going out in a shower in which you know you'll get wet. In a fog, you do not know you are getting wet, but as you keep walking, you get wet little by little. If your mind has ideas of progress, you may say, oh, this pace is terrible. But actually, it is not. When you get wet in a fog, it is very difficult to dry yourself. So there is no need to worry about progress. It is like studying a foreign language. You cannot do it all of a sudden, but by repeating it over and over, you will master it. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.